Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 45. Thanks so much for joining us on this strange time. Our guest today, as you probably know, is Mark Allen Martino. He's a poet living in Italy, and so um, the regular time is way too late for him, um, and we're doing this early, so I'm glad he could join us. Uh, Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a uh, 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry, and we've been in continuous publication since 1995. We are completely independent and unaffiliated with any other organization. If you like what I do, or what we do, uh, all we ask is that you click the like button and share wherever you're watching or listening to this, and um, tell your friends that this is good a good way to enjoy some poetry. And, and that'll be really helpful, because um, the way the internet works, uh, you need to have these clicks so that the uh, Facebook and, and all these, uh, these things know what we're doing. And um, now for the warm-up poem today... I thought we would read a poem by next week's guest, um, just sort of an intro to next week's show. And um, this poem was actually literally the inspiration for Poets Respond. Um, I don't know if you, anybody remembers, in 2006, there was the Sago mining disaster, where um, um, I think it was 12 miners or 13 miners were trapped after an explosion in a mine in Sago, West Virginia. And um, for about 48 hours, everybody tried to scramble to get them out. Only one survived. And uh, five years after that, we published this poem by Sonny Greenfield. And um, I, I remember thinking at the time when we read it, like, wouldn't it be cool? Because she mentioned in her letter that she wrote this at the time and, and hadn't published it for five years. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had a way to publish these poems right away? And uh, that was the inspiration for Poets Respond. And it was this poem right here by Sonny Greenfield. Um, and this is Sago, West Virginia. And she has her audio here, but... Um, The sound quality is low, so I'll just read it myself. It's a pretty short poem. Uh, Sago, West Virginia. The blast was a rumble, rock cascade, stone seal. The cave was a pinpoint of unlight, a hole, hole. The wives cried, the coal a black ribbon pinned to a lapel. The gas was methane in a shaker, a drunken slew. The lung an inky sack that wrapped a greater body in a bag. The letters said goodbye. The miners pulled a curtain, prayed a sinner's prayer. The lamp, a nightlight, as each crawled into sleep. The survivor made a baker's dozen, the twelve no longer there. And that was Sonia Greenfield, who will be next week's guest on the Rattlecast at the regular time, Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, 6 a.m. Pacific, or 6 p.m. Pacific. Um, and now today's guest, as I mentioned, is um, Mark Allen Martino. And his book, Unburial. Uh, uh, Mark Allen Martino has appeared in uh, Rattle Number 62 and Poets Respond. And he was also the feature artist for uh, February's Ekphrastic Challenge. He was born in the United States in 1974 and is the author of Unburial by Kelsey Books that just came out last year. He was also the co-editor along with Betsy Mars, who's a poet um, that, that we recognize well. She's a Los Angeles poet that uh, comes to our literary festival every year. And, and she did the Ekphrastic Challenge too. But he... Uh, edited with Betsy Mars, um, Unsheathed, 24 Contemporary Poets Take Up the Knife. And uh, Mark Allen DiMartino lives in Italy. And here he is, Mark Allen DiMartino. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Hi, Tim. Great. It's great to be here. How are things, first off, how are things in Italy now? Because I feel, I remember we, we were talking even about setting this up, and it was in the middle of the insane outbreak. Um, yeah. Where where everything can I use profanity or is this, <laughs> you can uh, yeah use whatever you want say whatever you want <laughs> no things are a total a total mess in Italy mm-hmm. but things are always a mess in Italy are they 
So my mother used to live in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, she met my father here in 1965, and she was uh, living here, uh, you know, a young American woman abroad. And uh, 40 years later, when I moved here, she said, you know what, uh, Italy's always a mess. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's always a crisis. It's always, you know, it's always, it was when I was there, it is now. Um, get used to it. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, it's Italy is always just a complete fucking mess, but um, now it's even more of a complete mess than than normal. Mm. Uh, people are just freaking out mm. because, well, obviously you know we were in lockdown longer than anybody else probably in the world. Mm-hmm. So people are just you know uh, at, at first there was all this solidarity like oh you know, ce la facciamo mm-hmm. we can do from it the balconies, everything will be yeah. fine. Sure, singing from the balconies, all the positive stuff. And as anybody who remembers September 11th knows, that doesn't last longer than a mm-hmm. month. And suddenly, all the recrimination and all the, the, you know, the, the accusations and the conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff begins. And everybody's convinced the government is behind it or they went too far. They destroyed the economy. And so right now we're in that period where everybody is kind of scrambling for a conspiracy theory that can, can that explain everything mm-hmm. that's been happening yeah and um yeah we still don't have the ground beneath our feet yeah well that's sort of I, yeah, we can't you know, i feel like um the whole time i felt like italy was sort of a maybe three weeks or a month ahead of us so you could like look into the future by asking you what was going on there <laughs> and uh no it's gone. yeah hmm. i mean especially with what's going on there now mm-hmm. it's like who knows where you guys are now with uh, yeah. as far as it goes mm-hmm. it's <laughs> I know drifting it is it's, it's very confusing I don't I don't know what to make of you know I read science constantly and at first it seemed like there was sort of consensuses and now everything is just so many retracted science papers and you can't believe anything it's it's it's, it's driving me crazy right. I've, I've kind of given up trying to even figure it out um but anyway let's not talk about that let's talk about your book on burial which I didn't even show on the screen sure um Here's it for everybody to see. This is a beautiful cover. And somebody already asked. I saw out of the corner of my eye. Somebody asked about the cover art. So so since I'm showing it Good. right now, uh, what what is the cover I'm art? I'm happy somebody asked about the cover art because the cover art is something that I, I chose. Um, and a friend of mine who should be listening now, my friend Beatriz Crespo, who's a Spanish artist living in Berlin um, and a good friend of mine, um, she did the cover art and, on request when I knew that I had had a, a book contract and I was doing a book and they said, um, go find your cover art, you know, because I guess now everybody does everything, mm-hmm. um, cover art and blurbs and all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, Oh, I get to choose the cover art. And, uh, the first thing I thought was, uh, Beatrice because I had been to Berlin and met her and seen her art and she's just fantastic. And I asked her and she's like, of course I'll do it. And she sent me about a hundred monotypes, this is a monotype on the cover. And um, I don't know if the people can see it or have seen it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they see it right now. Yeah, it's, um, it's a monotype. And I loved it, first of all, because it, like the, the upward motion of the, the, the red, mm-hmm. um, it's just kind of like, it's almost like something is being unburied, shooting up from the earth. Uh, so I liked that, that it was really the movement. And uh, I had been, when I was in high school, I was an art student. Um, it was the one class I liked. And I, I had a great teacher, uh, Mr. Smith, this is in Baltimore, and he was a printmaker and he was, uh, he taught us to make monotypes. And I made many monotypes uh, like this back when I was in high school. 
And um, when I saw it, I thought, hey, you know, it's what, like what I used to do, but much better. It's a professional artist kind of thing. And so I said, hey, I'd really like to use this. And she said, sure. Yeah, well, that's a great, it's a beautiful book. The, who made it? It was, uh, oh, Kelsey Books. I, I should Kelsey have said Books, that. Yeah. yeah, but it's a really well, well put together book and beautiful cover. I do like that too. Um, do you Thank want to start out by reading, normally I don't have requests, but the first poem in the book is such a good first poem um, that sort of sets up the stage for everything. Um, do you Run want away? to start? Yeah, do you want to start with that, maybe? I will. Again, yeah, this is, um, there are a couple of uh, bad words in this one. Yeah, so if don't, anybody don't worry about it. We, uh, we are not monetized right. anyway, although we just had our um, monetate. We have enough views now that we could monetize, but we, we won't monetize. So it doesn't matter anyway. Okay. You can say whatever you want. Good. Okay. Uh, well, uh, should I give some background? Or yeah, go yeah, go it? ahead. Uh, again, uh, the background is called Runaway. It's about, um, it's, it's kind of me imagining like a psychological experiment. Um, my parents met in 1965 in Rome. My father was a Roman man. My mother was an American woman, a uh, Jewish American woman um, who had come to Europe to, I don't know, find a man, I guess. And uh, they ended up meeting in uh, the park in, uh, in Rome, the same park where I would meet my wife uh, many years later. And um, so this is kind of me imagining how that went, because it was a story that I'd always heard. But um, neither of my parents uh, are alive anymore. So it's just me imagining kind of what was going through their heads while they were meeting for the first time. And it's uh, inspired a little bit by Delmore Schwartz's story uh, in Dreams Begin Responsibilities. If anybody's familiar with that, mm -hmm. that's kind of maybe with the psychological baggage. Runaway. My mother is sitting alone on a park bench in Villa Borghese eating a sandwich. It isn't an easy thing to find a sandwich in Rome in 1966. She's had to root out Bar degli Americani on Via Veneto near the embassy in order to find ham on white bread, no mayonnaise. Imagine that. A Jewish girl eating a ham sandwich on a park bench in Rome with no mayo. What is she doing there so far from home? And where is home anyway? Her parents' home in Brookline, Massachusetts? That isn't home. Not anymore. She ran away from that home. Came to Rome via Paris, via San Francisco. Anywhere but at the Shabbos table with that tyrant her mother and her ineffectual father. A ham sandwich on a park bench is better than that, she says to herself, as a dapper man appears, dressed in a smart black suit. She notices his teeth. Naively, she thinks he might be Marcello Mastroianni, her singular destiny to meet a movie star, fall in love, and become his wife. Live happily ever after the fantasies that run through a young woman's head. This is not Eddie Fisher, nice Jewish boy, dungaree doll. This man is a smooth talker. He wants to sell her something. Realizing she's an American, he begins speaking in broken schoolboy English. He turns on the charm, and she is charmed. What is he selling? Wine, what else? You are in Italy, poor girl, eating a sandwich all alone. He overwhelms her, makes her feel like Audrey Hepburn. She, in turn, is an easy target, not like Italian women. To get into their pants, 
you have to go through their families. He knows. He has two sisters. He's always beating up guys in his neighborhood for putting their hands on them. He's got a reputation. But everyone knows American women are unmoored. Why else do they come here? To get into trouble. To meet a Casanova. To have what they call a fling. He learned that word in a movie. Then they go back home and get married to a Rock Hudson or a John Wayne, have two kids and two cars, and pursue their dreams of happiness. Europeans have history. Americans have dreams. That seems to him a profound insight. My mother crinkles the cellophane into a ball, rolls it in her palm, brushes the crumbs from her skirt. He looks at her knees, the skin boldly exposed, wonders what's beyond them. She isn't thin, he thinks, as he absorbs her body with his eyes. He isn't subtle. You don't need to be in Rome in 1966. All you need to have is charm, and he has excellent charm. She decides in that moment she will go anywhere with this man. She will do anything he asks. She has nothing to lose, no one waiting for her on the other side of the ocean, no Eddie Fisher. Her brother is married to a German, her brother the magician who disappeared into a German woman and never came out. How she would like to disappear into this man, fall into the black hole of him, learn to curse her own parents in his tongue, allow the sensual inflections of Italian to evict the Yiddish gutturals lodged in her throat like fish bones. How she would like to learn to trill her R's, double her consonants, strap a crucifix around her neck for the sheer pleasure of seeing her mother's dumbstruck punin. Bury her alive with Roman invective, li dua, fuck your dead ancestors. Tear the crucifix off and flush it down the toilet, having exhausted its usefulness. She smooths her skirt, a little flushed. That was the opening poem uh, to Unburial, um, yeah. Runaway, um, a long powerful poem and it's it's interesting um you know it just sets up the book so well like you don't know um that you're talking about your father at first either and so there's this sort of i don't know the way that you um you know the book is an unburial it's a kind of excavation of your family and um and and the way you don't sugarcoat anything like the honesty that moves through the book is really you know, it's shown in that poem, and then um, it comes through and everything else, too. Um, what, what is your... When did you know that this is what you wanted to write about, and, 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 and why? How did, that, how did the book come to be? Uh, it's a great mystery, actually. Um, it's one of those things that I had never understood until it happened. Kind of like if you've never written a poem, you don't know how people write poems. And then suddenly one day, holy shit, I just wrote a poem. How did that thing happen? What is that thing on the page? And then you start, you know, you kind of figure out this thing happened. And uh, I had written poems for years. I'd been writing poems since the late 90s, maybe 97, 98 is when I started writing poetry. And um, I've written off and on since then, but I've never 
been very constant. I, I'd write a lot in a few years, then stop for whatever reason, then pick it up again. And um, it always been kind of frustrating to think that I could never do it and uh, get anywhere with it. I published a couple of pieces here and there, and then I'd stopped writing for six years. That I'd write again, publish a piece or two, and then I'd stop writing for another six years due to circumstances in my life. And so this time, um, I decided I really wanted to see where I could go with poetry, see if I could actually um, get a book, publish a book, write a book. And uh, I started writing again about 2017, maybe late 2017. I hadn't written for six years because I'd had a kid and uh, a job and uh, things were complicated. And uh, when I decided I wanted to start writing again, uh, I was in a new world, you know, the world of submittable, the world. I, mean, I, I remember sending paper submissions with envelopes back in the late 90s. Um, and I was, you know, so everything had kind of changed. Everything was online. And I had to kind of get used to it again and figure out what to write about, you know. And, uh, of course, that's when I discovered uh, Poets Respond as well because that hadn't existed back in the day. And um, I got kind of interested in that that world and uh, started writing, you know, poems and sending them out. And um, But none of it really seemed to make a book, mm-hmm. you know, you just, can't collect a bunch of poems and say, here's a book. And um, my mother was has been, had been sick for, for years. She'd been in their nursing home since about 2014. And she was suffering from dementia and she was getting much worse. And, and I was living here and um, I couldn't, there was no communication. She couldn't read a letter or respond to it. Um, I couldn't call her on the phone because she was practically death. And so there was no communication. It was really frustrating. And, um, and my dad had died when I was 15. So there were all these losses, right, just like piled up in my life. And they all kind of came together. I just started writing. Um, I can't remember what the first poem was, if there was a first poem. But I found myself like investigating this loss, investigating my father, investigating what my mother was going through. And they just started coming out one after the other, and they were all thematic. They were all about these two people, my parents. And I was trying to work through it, I guess. My sister's a psychologist, so she says, okay, well, you're just working through this issue. And I said, okay, well, I'm trying to write poetry. It's not the same thing. And she says, ah, call it what you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and I realized that in about six or seven months, I had amassed, I don't know, 50, 60 of these poems. And they were just going deeper and deeper, like you said, into this this wound, mm-hmm. this volcano. And um, I kind of, you know, I've never been somebody who really liked to sugarcoat the truth. Um, and so I just said, you know, if I can't do it in poetry, if I can't say what's true in poetry, my version of truth, mm-hmm. obviously, um, you know, what's the point? And so, yeah, it's kind of raw. Um, but that's where the poetry was, I found. That's... You know, they're your parents. You don't want to offend them, obviously. Neither of them could ever read anything I've written. But still, you don't want to offend their memory. You know, there's a whole lot of uh, emotional stuff at work. But then again, I thought, you know, uh, I'm the one who has to live with this. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to make art out of it. I have to make poetry out of it. And uh, so I ended up trying to do that. And uh, when I realized that it was a book, and it was almost symmetrical, if you notice, the, there's a kind of symmetry to the book where the first half is about uh, mostly my father, and the second half is about mostly my mother. And uh, it's pretty equally divided, and that was kind of a conscious decision on my part. Yeah, well, they're both, um, I mean, just speaking from a, you know, as a reader perspective, they're both interesting characters. I mean, I know they're your parents, and they mean a lot to you, but they're both, um, 
they both have a lot to, you know, you come from an interesting background. <laughs> Thank you. What, what did the rest of your family think about, about reading this book? Well, luckily for me, I guess I have a small family, mm -hmm. half of which doesn't speak English. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the most family members I have are here in Italy, and none of them really speak uh, English or read poetry. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, um, for the most part, they're either aware or that they care or that it's a problem for them. Um, and, of course, their cousins, they're not really. So I have a sister, mm -hmm. my sister Monica. She lives in, um, in Virginia. And um, I, I don't know if she's even been able to read the book yet. She was the one who took care of my mother for the last five years of her life. You know, um, they lived in the same place, and um, she was she sacrificed a great deal. And um, again, she's a psychologist, so she 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 lived it. I lived it from here. I wrote about it, but she lived mm -hmm. it, and I think it's really difficult for her um, to read some of these poems. And so she's been supportive of the poems that, um, that she has read, but I don't think she's read the book yet, um, or we haven't talked about it if she has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely but, imagine um, that. Um, I should say, if anybody has any questions for uh, Mark, let me know in either the Facebook or the uh, YouTube chat windows, and I'll pass those questions along. But let's hear a couple more poems. Sure. Um, I just want to skip around. I haven't even earmarked. Um, yeah, wherever you want, just let me know the page yet. number. Okay, good. Uh, I want to read a short one, I guess, now, because that was kind of a long one. There's a lot of long stuff in this book, three, four pages. How about um, the double feature, page 20? That's one I've never read before. Let me know. Yeah, Can yeah, I go? go okay, good. Double feature. I'd cry when my father went to the movies alone. It broke my prickly little heart, hardened it like bone. Youth blinded me to pleasures of middle age. How the divorced scrounge around in their pockets for change, to change the tune, even dance a little. Divorce was death to me. To him, it was a trompe l'oeil, full of tiny illusions the married can't see. TV dinners, sex with yourself, Friday night at Denny's, splurging on a drippy ice cream sundae, invisible to all but your own children. It was double feature from Unburial. Let's do another. Yeah. Let's do Heaven on the second sure. on the next page, twenty-one. Okay, and this is actually a story about a real car accident that I was in with my dad and my dog when I was eight years old. Heaven. The day the brakes failed on my father's car, we should have died. What did I know of life at eight years old? It was 1982. The roads weren't equipped with guardrails yet, and rain drenched the swerve of asphalt above the reservoir as our tiny Fiat gripped the curve and my father's foot fumbled at the pedals. Out of the blue, Leaves lodged in my eyes, and I felt the absurd thrill of flight. Acrobats on a trapeze, forgetful that we were three animals trapped in a moving vehicle, crashing through trees. The patient water lapped the muddy bank dozens of yards below. Like a tin spaceship, we hit the earth, 
struck down by sycamores that caught our car as on a spider's thread before it plummeted past underbrush and downward to the waiting reservoir. My father split the windshield with his boot, gave three hard kicks and the, the safety glass thatched like an eggshell. He sent me scurrying up to flag down help. From the blasted shoulder, our totaled fiat was a soda can crushed by an ogre's foot, tossed carelessly into the woods, an afterthought. Alone, I waved down motorists, shrieking and pointing, convinced I was a ghost until one stopped, while Dad disentangled our dog from the wreck and scrambled up to meet me in the sun. We must be dead, I told myself, and this is heaven. And that was... Uh heaven from uh yeah every detail is exactly as i remember it yeah 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 all of those things actually happened <laughs> yeah. i almost died uh, judy cronenfeld who's on here uh she says she judy. quotes lowell she says why not say what happened something robert lowell said i like that quote i hadn't heard that before why not say what happened and um why not yeah yeah she you know that she says uh you remind me of that quote um hi judy <laughs> yeah um let me see let me make sure I get to any questions. Um, so one thing I was wondering is how you ended up in Italy. How did you, you know, you grew up in the United States and then you moved there at some point. Um, yeah. Why? And, and what do you teach? Is that what you do? Uh, I'm an English teacher, actually. I teach English as a second language. Mm -hmm. um, I have a, a little school that I run where I teach. And um, how did I end up in Italy? Wow. That's like the million dollar question. Well, I don't think uh, you well, mentioned that you met your wife at the same park that your father or and mother met. I don't think, unless I missed the poem, that wasn't in the book, I don't think. Um, no, that's in a different poem from a different book. Uh -huh. um, yeah, this, this, this book concerns my parents, not my wife. She was, you know, she begged me to leave her out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so you have another um, book that, that you're going to publish? I have another book that should be coming out at some point this year. Oh, okay, cool. Still Life with City, mm -hmm. which kind of talks about... Um, the time I lived in New York up to September 11th, and then uh, the transition to my life in Italy. So where I deal with a lot of, um, again, they're narrative poems, mm -hmm. like these are narrative poems. Um, but yeah, how did I end up in Italy? Well, my dad is was Italian. My dad was from Rome. Um, he'd been born here during the war. And um, my mother was uh, from America, from Boston. And she was a free spirit in the 60s. You know, she was a young woman in her mid-20s, and she uh, left her home. Um, and she went to San Francisco, and then from San Francisco went to Paris, and from Paris went to Rome, just on a lark. You know, hey, I'll live in Rome for six months, see what happens. I guess I get that from her. And she met my dad in a park, and um, they fell in love. And they got married, and they moved back to Boston, where my dad went to school, and where I and my sister were born. And so we grew up in this, you know, sort of binational, bicultural family with an Italian father and uh, an American mother. And um, so for us, Italy was always kind of like home away from home. Her, his family was here. Um, you know, we'd always come to Italy on vacation. It was always, you know, where are you going to go this year? Oh, we're going to go to Italy and see the aunts and see the uncles and the cousins. And I'd lived in New York for about eight years, I think, by the time I was in my late 20s. And um, you live in New York for that long and you just have to get out. 
it's just too much, you know, and September 11th, it just happened. And, um, I just had to get out Mm -hmm. and I needed a new, a new lifestyle. And so I said, okay, I'll take a a sabbatical and I'll go go to Italy, live with my aunt who had an apartment, has an apartment. And I did, and uh, I didn't plan to stay, but I met my wife and that's how things happen. And so, yeah, we met in the same park as my parents. That's pretty cool. Oddly enough. (laughs) That's a great story. Um, and we married in the same place. Oh, too. wow. That is really cool. Yeah. 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 Um, everybody, there's a bunch of questions about Italian um, poetry. Um, some people are asking if you'd write anything in Italian. Do you write any poems in Italian? Um, and I also, do, do you not. do any translation? I do. Uh, I do not write in Italian because I don't feel that. I mean, I write emails in Italian, but, you know, not poetry. I, I just don't feel I can do it. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that it's not my language. I mean, it is, but it's not that language. Uh, I can't get that deep with Italian, I guess. Mm-hmm. I do translate. Uh, I did a lot of translation some years ago. I haven't done much recently. Um, there's one Italian poet, that, um, a Roman poet, pretty unknown. His name is Mario dell'Arco. And um, he was a Roman dialect poet. He wrote in, in what's called the Romanesco. And he lived mid-century mm-hmm. until about the 90s. So he's like 50s, 60s, 70s. And he's a really, really, really wonderful poet who writes these tiny little poems. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Samuel Menashe. Name sounds familiar, but not, not really. He's an American poet mm-hmm. who, from New York who wrote these tiny little poems, four lines, five lines. Everything is just this microscopic. But they're really intricate, beautiful little works of art. And this guy's kind of the same in a way, but he writes in Roman dialect. And when I discovered him, I was like, okay, I can feel that there's, you know, I just loved it right away. And nobody knows who this guy is. I mean, not even Italians. And so I started translating his stuff. And, um, you know, a handful of of poems I've published here and there. Do you have anything with you by any chance that you could read since they're short? We're kind of... Yeah, well, there was one that went up uh, this month Mm -hmm. on a website. Uh, I don't know if it's, is it okay if I... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We, we love poetry it's everywhere called, it is, so, yeah. Yeah, it's called Waning Moon. Waning Moon. Let's see. Should I send you a link or should I just read it? Um, I could probably find it. Just read it, yeah. Let me try to see if I can... Okay, I mean, it's a tiny little thing. Um, and it was in First Things? It was in, it is in First yeah, Things. Yeah, I have yeah, it right June here, 20. so you can read it and... Um, okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Go. Sure. So it's a translation of Mari dell'Arco's Luna Calante, which means waning moon. Pendant around the neck of night, ringed by Taurus, Capricorn, Ursa Major on the rise, before so many fiery eyes, little by little, whittles to a horn. That is cool. Yeah, I just love the idea of... Um bringing poets into the future. Like that's the coolest thing about translation is when someone finds a poet that was really a great poet that nobody knows about anymore. And then you can bring it forward so that we can all um, enjoy it. That's really cool. Yeah, I think so too. I think that it's, um, it's kind of that undiscovered treasure, right? I mean, it's like one thing to do Dante. I mean, everybody, you know, Dante is wonderful. Dante is Dante. Um, but it's been done hundreds of times, you know, um, it's also really difficult to do because you have to measure yourself up against not only Dante, but everyone else who's ever translated Dante. And, um, it's a different thing to find somebody who's really never appeared as far as I can tell in English. I've never found another translation of this guy. 
And so it's like, okay, well, I don't have anything to translate against, right? And um, I really like the work, you know? And he's all full of all internal rhyme and wordplay. It's really fun to try and translate that stuff and bring it to readers who, you know, obviously have never heard of this guy. Yeah. But I think it's pleasurable, yeah. It definitely is. And there's just a the sense of, of the way things, like humans are humans no matter what century they're living in, is always just a fascinating realization. Like, um, I love reading Catullus because, um, or Catullus, or however mm-hmm. you'd say it, uh, for that same reason. It's like, oh my, like all the thoughts are like thoughts that we have and the problems are problems we have. And it's just, you know, moved up through the centuries. Totally. That's poetry, though. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's what it does. Mm-hmm. It, I've been reading Paul Valery, do you know Yeah. Him? Mm-hmm. And he's uh, his art of poetry recently. And I don't read a heck of a lot of like poetry criticism and stuff. Um, but, you know, I just happen to have this thing lying around. And he said, um, like poetry, is, a poem is a machine that recreates an emotion or a thought whenever it's read. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like this little machine. You turn it on by reading it. And each time you do it, like if you read Keats's Ode to a Nightingale or whatever, it's like, how can you not? experience that every time Mm -hmm. right um so yeah it's kind of interesting to think about poems as like little machines word machines um you know they get adjusted i like calling them empathy machines empathy machines yeah um let me ask you one more thing about about italy what is the contemporary poetry scene like in italy i always wonder like um, are there poets like are there like literary magazines in italy are there are they published in newspapers are they just not publishing much i i wish i knew the answer to that it's so Um, weird to me because i've tried you know i've looked you know being an editor of you know a publisher i've looked tried to look to see like i'll say you know rattle has second most subscribers of any poetry magazine right but then i'll say is that true is there some magazine in russia that has more subscribers published and i have no idea and i i search and try to find india too and it turns out there's really not that much in india at least i i I explored that really uh, extensively but uh, but I wonder are there like literary magazines in Russia? Are there MFA? Pro- I mean, in in Italy, are there MFA programs in Italy, or is this an American? <laughs> you know what? I don't even know the answer to the question. Yeah. I am out of touch. Mm-hmm. I'm out of touch. Um, and it's a curious thing living abroad and being kind of having one foot in that world, but having like your whole body in this world. Um, it's also true for like being a, a sort of bicultural, binational person with a parent from one country. Right, parents from two countries, and I'm living in a different country than the one I was born in. So I'm never whole, right? You're never of one place. Mm-hmm. You're never in one place. You're always missing something on the other side. And so that's kind of how I grew up, and that's kind of how I've always lived my life. I've never been entirely in one current or in one place or in one culture. Um, and definitely not for the last 17 years since I've been mm-hmm. here. But, you know, honestly, I don't know a damn thing about Italian pop music, mm-hmm. nor do I care. Yeah. And Italian poetry, I really am not the best student of it. I know there's a literary scene. I know, are there magazines? I guess. But bookstores? Are there bookstores? No. So it's like, I don't even have bookstores. Mm-hmm. Okay, one thing that I, maybe... I want to be clear about is I live in a place with no bookstores, mm-hmm. which is a hard thing for a person who worked in New York's best bookstores that, that for years. That seems really surprising to me. You're in Perugia. Yeah. Um, 
why are there no bookstores? I, I would I would assume that there would would be. <laughs> <laughs> There's like one bookstore. Mm-hmm. There's like the big like uh, what's called Feltrinelli, which is like Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. There's one of them in the center, and then there's one independent bookstore, which, again, it sells ninety nine point nine percent books in Italian. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure, they have poetry section, but you know, poetry is not really. It's not like you're going to Shakespeare and Company and there's like walls of poetry, okay? Um, it's a really out-of-the-way place, culturally speaking. It's not Rome. It's not Milan. It's not Florence. Not much is happening here. In fact, I tried to set up a reading after the book came out, and I couldn't find a place that would even would even would was even available mm-hmm. for a reading mm-hmm. because they said, who's going to want to care? Is your reading in English? Who would care? It's poetry. Like those two things together. As if I said I wanted to give a zucchini cutting class or something. Who would want to, you know, they looked at me quizzically like, how could we, what, what, what? there's nowhere for you here. Um, so it's, it's that kind of a place. Yeah. Bookstores sell bestsellers. They sell books mm-hmm. of history. Yeah. English language poetry books in my local bookstore. There's one. Mm-hmm. And it's that woman Ru- who's an Instagram poet. Ru- Ru- What's Ru- her Car. name? Rupi. Yeah. They have a stack. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. They have a stack of 100 copies mm-hmm. of every one of her books. And there's not a single other book of poetry in English in the entire bookstore. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of place. Yeah. That's uh, the thing that so I again, always... Um, there's a sort of mythology that poetry is more appreciated everywhere else but where you are. And um, so you're kind uh, of ruining that that great mythology that people actually read poetry so <laughs> I am that person that, like, everybody thinks Italy is the most wonderful place. Everybody's never lived here. And it's a wonderful place in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong. The food is good. The wine is good. The people are beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But it's, you know, I mean, it's a difficult place to live. Hmm. You know, I mean, the bureaucracy is heavy duty. Um, And again, culturally speaking, if you're outside of one of the big epicenters like Rome, Milan, if you're an American poet, there's not a hell of a lot of culture for you. Nobody's going to let you read. Nobody's going to come to the readings, even if you do. And there's nowhere to buy books. So you have to buy books. What do I book? I buy books in Rome. Hmm. I buy books at the American bookshop in Rome. And I have to order them and go down to Rome to pick them oh, up yeah. twice a year. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I don't want to order them on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I don't really like Amazon. Um, so yeah, it's like, and I came from, I worked in New York's best bookstores when I was in New York, the Strand Bookstore, the Gotham Bookmart. So I was literally like submerged in books and literary history for years. You know, I mean, Gregory Corso, Allen Ginsberg, these people just walked in the door. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, you know, the frozen north. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so it's a weird phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, here we're in a small town, so we have a used bookstore, and um, and no, I don't even know how it stays in business. <laughs> but um, but the books are in English. Yeah, but the books are in English. Yeah, and and somehow we have a bookstore in a town of five thousand people. So um, so I don't know. Maybe that says something to. I don't know. Our people like to read. I guess. Um, do you want to read some more poems from the book, though? Sure. Or, or you have, I have those new poems you sent too. So whenever you want to shift to that, feel free. But we have about 20 minutes. So whatever you want to do is good. Okay. Uh, let me read. Oh, let me read another one of those um, uncomfortable poems called Nana's Tongue, page 77. 
and it's about my grandmother, my grandparents, my mother's parents. Um, and my grandmother and grandfather lived in Boston and Brookline. And um, we went up to visit them when I was uh, a kid. And all I remember about their apartment was um, that my, my, my grandmother would make tongue, pickled tongue, which if you've ever had it is a taste you can't forget. So this is a poem about that. Nana's tongue. My Nana's specialty was pickled tongue. If I remember nothing else about her, I'll remember her tongue, the way it lay on my plate, a reddish brown slab of meat, thick and briny. If you could serve and eat a bruise, surely it would be that color. Its taste still lingers each time I bite a pickle, decades after she and my grandfather, who loved his soup lava hot, passed on. I was a child then. My grandmother seemed to do all the speaking in their home as her gentle husband sat silently sipping hot soup from a spoon. It was as if he'd lost his tongue or had had it cut out in a second circumcision, worse than the first, which merely snipped some useless skin off his penis. This one silenced him effectively for decades. She berated him like a slave, hot tongue wagging in her mouth, Yenta style. I'd watch his spectacles like little mirrors reflecting her back to herself, steel rims glinting off the crystal chandelier they'd inherited from by then gassed relatives. I never once knew warmth from these people, never once a hug or a kindness, just intermittent warfare waiting to be waged at every turn, each annual visit to their high-rise in Brookline like a school trip to the Holocaust Museum. I can no longer hold my tongue or feign the solemn devotions of a grandson. My mother wasted her life hating them more than she loved herself. Let them lie in these lines forever like the tongues they bit off, cold and mute and pickled with spite. Mm. That is a strong poem there. Uh, Nana's Tongue from Unburial. Why don't you keep going and, and read some more? Okay. Um, read something for my mother, actually. Um, next week would be her 81st birthday on the 14th of June. Uh, she died last July, on um, July 7th. And she died right when I was proofing the book for publication. And um, so... Candle, this is page 84. Candle. I need a better way to remember you that isn't a bleak portrait of a room inhabited by a woman with your name, but rather her twin sister, like the one who came to visit me in New York, skipping across puddles on First Avenue, youthful at 60. I want to find that woman again and bring her back to where you are, to sit her down and say, you are my mother and I cherish you despite what time has wrought, its ravages, how memory unspools like a ball of yarn in the paws of a kitten. I still love the word mother, a reminder, a promise, a trigger. Yesterday, you turned 80 years old, 
and I wasn't there to share your cheesecake, light your candle, help you blow it out. Take these instead, a few straight words that will outlast us both. That was Candle from Unburial. Um, we haven't read any poems yet that are in form, but you write in form too. And um, in your poems, um, even when they're not in form, they, they feel very um, metered. I don't know if you're writing in blank verse often or, or maybe subconsciously. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think your um, influences are? And, and, and you know, who do you read? And, and how does that, the meter and, and rhyme get into there? Okay, well, um, you're right about the blank verse. I mean, I, it's something that um, I've actually been trying to get out of oh, really? uh, recently. I've been writing in blank verse since I started writing. My first literary love, my first poet that I loved was Hart, Hart Crane. Hmm. Uh, and I found him uh, restocking the poetry shelf at the Gotham Book Mart. And I came across this book and um, I opened it and it was just tremendous. And if you're familiar with Crane, he writes in blank verse almost exclusively. Um, and it's powerful blank verse. It's like a train moving across the tracks. And I was really addicted to that meter. You know, and of course, you know, Wallace Stevens, Frost. I mean, those were the first the first poets that um, I began reading seriously. And uh, they all write in that, you know, that iambic style, that that pentameter. And so I, I learned to do it, you know, and that was kind of like my default meter forever. And uh, I learned to write sonnets, rhymed sonnets, Italian sonnets, English sonnets pretty early on. And uh, almost everything I wrote in the beginning was either blank verse or some sort of rhymed metered sonnet. And uh, yeah, I've written a lot of those, but I've gotten so tired of rhyming. Mm -hmm. I mean, end rhyme. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, in the last year or two, I just, you know, I said, okay, internal rhyme. Mm -hmm. You know, I like when things just kind of happen, rhymes that you didn't really predict, you know, but uh, I got really kind of sick of um, writing A, B, B, A, yeah, yeah. or A, B, A, B. But yeah, that's underneath it all is that strict sonnet form, that blank verse, that I am. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that holds but over you, into these You mentioned wanting to get, get out of um, writing in meter though too. Is there something, is there a reason for that? Because I, I love when poets use really subtle meter. I think that's my, you know, the poets, poems feel um, more complete or something or more solid yeah. when, when there's a cadence to it that's, that's regular. Um, so, so why would you want to get out of doing that? Just to do something different. Yeah, yeah. Oh, when I was in art, when I, uh, when I was in high school, actually, I went to art school in college. But when I was in high school, I mentioned my, my art class um, and my teacher, Mr. Smith, the printmaker, and he said something. And, you know, that's the thing of the sign of a good teacher is the one that you remember 35 years later that said that one thing to you that one time that changed your perspective. And he said to me after I had struggled to do some art project. Um, and, and what I did was I got frustrated and I scrapped the whole thing and started over. And he said, that right there, that's what you need to not be afraid to do is just to scrap it all and start over. <laughs> and so he taught me that that was really important, right? Not being afraid to scrap it all and start over. And um, that's what I really remember about, um, about him. It was the most important lesson. And uh, I carry that into what I do now, I guess. Um, I've always kind of had an artistic personality. I've been a creative person. And I've never been afraid to sort of destroy and, and just start over from scratch. And um, something about um, wanting to, to blow it up, mm -hmm. you 
Uh, I don't like being stuck in a cage. I don't like being stuck in a meter and being one of these, being like thinking of myself as a formalist poet. Uh, you know, it's like, I'm no, there's so much other stuff I want to do, but I've never been able to. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to write that 12 syllable line or even bigger, right? That Whitman-esque line, right? That just rambles on and on. And I've always kind of envied people who could do that. Um, and, and, and I've tried and I've tried and it's never really worked out until recently I've started breaking out of the cage, mm-hmm. forcing myself out of it. And now I don't want to get back in. Well, that, that makes sense. Do you, do you right. think that, um, I always think of, um, writing in, in meter and rhyme as a kind of trick that you use to, to have creativity, you know, like it's a way to turn off, like your, your conscious mind has to focus on that in a way, and then you can pull up stuff from your subconscious while your conscious mind is distracted. I think that seems like how that, that's how it works. Um, do you find it? Yeah, that, I think that that's a good, uh... do you find that it's harder to be creative though, moving out of, um, form or, or do you think that, um, that's not really a problem? Well, again, I go back to like um, figurative art versus abstract art. Um, you know, the classic example in art school is uh, you're 19, you're in college, and you want to be Picasso. So you do, or Jackson Pollock, mm-hmm. and so you're just throwing paint on the walls, and you're like, I'm a genius. No, you can't even paint the human body, right? And they're like, okay, learn to draw the human body, and you're like, no, it's boring. And they say, you think Picasso couldn't draw the human body? You think Pollock never studied the nude? But it's boring. It's all that like grunt work before you can have fun by just being original and being abstract. But you can't do that. I learned that. You can't be Jackson Pollock or Picasso or Helen Frankenthaler or whomever until you could pretty well draw the human body. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I think that that's true also in poetry. I think that you can, you can try it. You can do it, sure. But I'm not sure it really works as well as it could unless you can do at least a couple of forms well. Mm-hmm. I'm saying you have to know every form. I don't, I don't know all the forms. Uh, I can barely write a villanelle, I think. Um, I've written two, but I've written a lot of sonnets. You know, the sonnet is kind of perfect. And I agree with, I think, I think everybody just kind of believes the sonnet is a perfect poetry, mm-hmm. poetic form. Um, it's like a box, you know, it can ca- be carried around with you. It's not too long or too short. It can be memorized. Um, it really is a perfect little poem. So I always, you know, think like, okay, well, if you can't write a sonnet or if you've never written a sonnet, you really should learn that yeah. before you break down the forms and do whatever you want. Um, so I think it does remain. I think the architecture um, of form does remain even when you're formless, if you know how to yeah, do it. Yeah, it reminds me of, underneath. Um, I don't remember which Kurt Vonnegut book it was. Was it Cat's Cradle? I don't remember which one, but one of them, there's an artist who does these abstract paintings where just, it's just a wall of the sublime and it's just one color and he gets a color from Lowe's and paints the whole canvas. But it turns out at the end that beneath it is a huge mural that's like really intricate and, um, and you know, realism, like photorealism um, beneath this. And so you can't see it at all. Uh, but that's kind of how it reminds, you know, you, the, the knowing how to use the structure of language is buried beneath the, the more seemingly free verse forms, I think. It's like a ghost. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it, yeah. It's like a ghost. Um, and I think that that's important. And I think that that's uh, something that a lot of people, you know, especially, I don't know, a lot of people, but um, some people, they want to go straight to the fun stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it's a mistake, yeah. you know. And um, I'm a skateboarder, too. And, and I see a lot of kids who want to get to the technical tricks and do their flips and stuff like that. But they can't do the basics. 
And I say, guys, just what are you doing? No, it doesn't work that way. You're a sca- so, but they're 15 Was it you that years. asked me um, at some point, like in an email, if um, like years ago, if if I knew skateboarding poems, or was that somebody else? I did. That was I you. Did. Okay. Was of course, it was me. I'm the only. Skate <laughs> yeah, that's poet the thing. There, I think I, I told you that I knew yeah. there was one person at an athlete poets issue, or, yeah. or maybe they just submitted. But um, but yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing, Tim, is that Rattle is actually. Um, you published a poem by uh, Matt Honer, mm-hmm. 2017, in Poets Respond, How to Unpack a Bomb Vest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a really powerful poem. And I saw that, and I had just gotten right, right back into to poetry, and I just started reading Poets Respond. And uh, Matt had been a friend of mine back when we were kids, teenagers in Baltimore, and we were both skateboarders. And uh, we used to skate together. And I said, this cannot be that Matt Honer. And it is. And uh, thanks to that poem in Rattle, I traced him and we got back in touch yeah. about a year and a half ago. And uh, now we're, uh, we're friends again and we're both in the poetry game together. And um, so thank you. That, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, that's neat. Good story. Um, one of the things that in the books I totally forgot to mention is that there, um, there's all this interest in science and um, in metaphors, you know, from astronomy and, um, and geology in the book, yeah. um, there's sort of overarching themes. I mean, one whole section is called Redshift. Um, how does, um, you know, what is your interest in science and how does that fit with your interest in poetry? My interest in science is completely pedestrian. Uh, I've had no formal scientific training in my life. Um, I hated biology and physics class in high school. Um, but I, I love, and I mean love, reading Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson, popular science, you know, anybody who can take that, that, that science, astronomy, biology, evolution, whatever it is, and, and make it understandable to the non-scientist, I think it's just the most wonderful uh, thing in the world. And um, I'm a stargazer. I can just, you know, I like to look up at the stars and write poems about the moon. And uh, so I love science from a very non-scientific point of view, but I also respect science in, in the way that, um, you know, is, is really the best way to truth in the world. Um, you know, I'm, and so in the book, um, I realized as an atheist, I couldn't use religious metaphors. Hmm. And I felt like I need something to replace that. Because, you know, I mean, if you read a lot of poetry, you know, and when you get to those big concepts and loss and death, you know, there's always, you know, God and heaven and hell and Jesus and all that kind of religious imagery. For better or for worse, that's what we've got to work with as humans. Okay. And I was like, I'm not going to work with that. I can't work with that. Okay. I mean, I'm not just an atheist. I'm pretty hostile towards religion. And so, like, I could not just do that. And um, I said, what am I going to replace it with, though? Because something has to fall into its place. And um, I've always been of the mind that uh, scientific concepts, you know, the, the, the sort of awe that you feel, um, you know, thinking about the universe, looking up at the stars, it's so much greater than, than religious feeling is for me or could ever be for me um, that I feel that it, it fills that gap. Mm-hmm. And, it, 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 you know, talk about, you know, I think Dorian had... Uh, Dorian Locks last night had read a poem about her mother and she talked about the atoms floating away into space and I thought hey you know we're on the same page I wrote about that too you know and uh, it's a really for me it's a powerful concept I mean the idea that um, 
all, all scientific concepts are powerful. And I think they're very poetic. And I think they don't get enough play in poetry. Yeah, that's cool, cool oh. to hear. I, I completely agree. And But I never heard anybody put it that way, that it's a counter to religious iconography. Um, yeah, that's, that's a cool cool way to look at it. Well, it seemed to make sense for me. And it, it definitely was useful in the book because it, it did help me to... To, to, to talk about certain things I couldn't talk about otherwise. I didn't have a, a, a toolkit of metaphor, mm-hmm. right? In science, especially uh, star, stars, the, the cosmos, because my father was an amateur stargazer, an amateur rock collector, you know, so that comes from him. And that's something that, that um, keeping, it, keeping to those themes, it was like he made, made him more present in the book because he's the the one who's been gone for the longest in my life i mean you know uh he died when i was 15 very suddenly and um and so that's the big absence right that's the big unburial in fact the title poem talks about that me trying to unbury him through language do you want to we have a little bit of time left do you want to do maybe one or two more poems or whatever you want to want to read we could do that or if we want to read something from um not in the book. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think I should whatever, whatever you like. Yeah, I have those here. Uh, whatever you want to sure. read. Sure. Yeah, I wouldn't mind reading two or three poems that weren't yeah. in the book because these poems are really long <laughs> in the book. Unburial's four uh-huh. pages. Oh, yeah. Okay. Take us, I think, yeah, too long. Um, I did want to read something which is kind of one of my uh, attempts to get away from, from blank verse and, and the sonnet form. Not the sonnet form, but the rhyme mm-hmm. sonnet. Um, and I also wanted to read one poem that I published in Rattle. Could we start with yeah, Worth sure. It? Which is sure, the one, ahead. yeah, that was uh, the Poets Respond poem. Yep. Have you got that? Go ahead. Okay, good. So this is uh, Worth It. This is uh, the first poem that I published in Rattle. You too are currency. You can be saved, devalued, spent, invested, thrown away, or burned. In this town, Roads are paved with skeletons of folks like you and me. Your net worth isn't what you thought it was. Pursuing happiness, you work for free. You're better than this, you tell yourself as you Google who you are. And who are you? Data, as it turns out. Go now. Erase your name from the wine-dark sea of Facebook blue before you're bought and sold. But it's too late. The work is done. What more is there to do but punch the clock and rue what's left of fate? In bed, you count your sheep and calculate. Very good. That was worth it. And and that was, um, if I remember right, that was when people were, one of the many times where people were walking away from Facebook. And that was the new story that, that inspired it, right? Yeah, it was one of, well, I think the news story that directly inspired it was one about how Facebook pits users against each other, psychologically, Mm -hmm. and it's just diabolical, how those algorithms work, and uh, I just, you know, I'm one of those people that really would love to get away from Mm -hmm. Facebook, but living abroad, it's really the only way I'm in touch with 90% of the people in my life. I mean, I feel the same way for for poetry, though. I mean, we we get so much out of sharing poems on Facebook that it's... um, it's hard to it's hard to walk away even though i hate what it's doing to us i hate the siloed nature of information and the way we fight constantly um just about worldviews that we can't see each other clearly anymore it's um it's really sad 
Well, I've taken a step back from that, and I no longer share anything mm-hmm. political on Facebook, and I no longer engage politically on Facebook. That's my rule. Yeah. Just poetry, just a couple of personal things. Yeah, that's, that's probably it. probably a good rule. So, um, but this is actually a rhymed metered sonnet. It doesn't look like it, but it's in Tertsarima, um, which is a Dante mm-hmm. rhyme, which is uh, the same thing that Frost used in his Acquainted with the Night poem. Yeah. Yeah, is it, I mean, when we get a good sonnet, I'm always trying to grab it because uh, we don't get enough of those. That's for sure. Um, I think I stopped writing sonnets <laughs> shortly after I had. Well, you that got one. in the door. It worked. Um, uh, could I read something from um, my 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 new you, manuscript, which should be out at some yeah, point? Yeah, in please do. Yeah, yeah, read it. And it's a poem that I I kind of really mm-hmm. like. Um, called uh, The Voidoids Play CBGB Late 77. Uh, let me see, make sure I have that, but yeah. It's in the document yeah. that I sent. Oh, I get it. Okay. Okay. And this is fun because it's kind of speculative history. Um, I'm, I'm a punk nut. Uh, I love the, the whole New York punk scene. Um, I was born too late to have seen it firsthand, but um, I've been playing around with these ideas uh, for a long, long time, trying to imagine what it must have been like to be there. And um, the Voidoids were, uh, for all those who don't know, were a band in CBGBs like the Talking Heads, the Ramones, Blondie. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. So for Richard Hell, who was the lead singer. Punk's Pindar sits apart, nursing his beer. Under the neon Tuborg sign, a troop of girls in ratty jeans and mutilated hair just sit. They do not smile. They glare. On stage, the singer Clark Kent's into a rage, his adolescent fire still palpable at 28. The drums keep clockwork time. Guitars play touch and go. The bass thump thumps its rhythm out the door down Bleecker Street. The bar is hopping. Bikers, execs, gangly teens with fake IDs straining to catch a glimpse of the je ne sais quoi that's made downtown excitable again. It's a veritable who's who of denizens, tramps, vamps, and Frankensteins. Black eyeliner runs in rivulets down faces besmirched with nihilistic coup d'etat, politics of the self. Music so voluminal, it fills their empty spaces, empty minds. Half the people in this room tonight will crash before the 80s turn, and disco supplants this harried, brief euphoria with coke dust nebulae at danceteria. These moments will survive in seedy songs and oral histories. Few will make it out of this hole, where even the bathroom sinks have hepatitis, become household gods. The vocalist claws fingers to his chest and tears a hole the size of Lexington, Kentucky. Track marks stud his forearms, spikes his cranium. It was the 400 blows that gave him that idea, that and Rimbaud. He already regrets it. Seasons in hell have kept him coming up for air, choking on all that adoration. Fans, like flies, pursue him through the East Village. He's not a beetle, he explains, but a poet. His notebook is rock and roll. 
imitate and be imitated, Artaud wrote, as you become the caricature you yourself once laughed at. The songs are cum-filled fantasies of death, suicide, incest, otherworldly yet precise in scope, executed as playful cabaret. Verlaine's ghost lurks inside his fevered brain. His spleen snaps back as fingers find the cord, white noise suffusing all like prophecy. Thanks so much. That was... um. Uh, the Voidoids play CBGB late 77. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Kind of an ode to yeah, punk. Yeah, that is ode one thing I never got into punk. So I um, I don't know the references okay. whatsoever, but um, it was a cool poem. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. And, uh, and thanks yeah, for welcome. being a guest today. It, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, yeah, Thank and thanks. You. I'm so glad it worked out um, being able to join in from Italy and having a poetry reading from your book. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much. It's been a great experience. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good rest of your night. You too. Thanks. Bye, Tim. Yeah, so that was uh, Mark Alan DiMartino um, in his book, Unbearable. If you're wondering why I switched to the the, um, screen view really quick, that was because apparently in in Italy, everybody uses uh, legal-sized paper, and the poem is cut off at the bottom. Um, But here's his book, Unbearable, with that beautiful cover once again, um, poems, you know, unburying his family. And um, check it out from Kelsey Books. I'm not sure what the Kelsey Books website is, but you can find uh, Mark Allen DiMartino at his website, which is uh, Mark, which is M-A-R-C, Allen, A-L-A-N, DiMartino, D-I-M-A-R-T-I-N-O dot com, Mark Allen DiMartino dot com. And check out his book, Unburial. Um, thanks for having him on the show tonight, and thanks for joining us now. We're going to do a little bit of open lines. I told you, um, since we got the shows a little mixed up over the last couple of weeks, um, we're just going to have the same prompt as last night. So if you wrote a, a poem for um, last week's prompt, um, which was, um, with your eyes closed, open any book to a random page. Make the title of your poem the first word you see. So that is your um, prompt for today. And if you wrote any poems about that, just send it to um, uh, openmicatrattle.com if you want to show on the screen. And you can call me up at 818-850-7727. Once again, it's 818-850-7727. Or send me a chat message over Skype. I know Richard Westheimer's here. I'm so glad you could join us, Richard. And and we'll share your poem for sure because we didn't get to you last night. Um, if anybody else wants to read um, either based on this prompt or um, I thought we'd open it up to a little bit to any recent publications. So if you have any recent publications you want to share and celebrate with us here today, this afternoon, uh, just email me openmic at rattle.com or give me a call at the phone number on the screen or send me a chat message over Skype and we'll uh, we'll get you on. Now, I, I said I would do my poem today. We did Megan's yesterday for last week's prompt. And um, my um, word, I, I closed my eyes and opened a page to a book, and it was um, uh, Dorian Lux's uh, book. And she had a line in there that my finger landed on. It's a, a great line. She said, um, I don't remember it exactly, um, but it was something like, um, Tundra, uh, even the word sounds like antelopes careening off of a cliff. 
or something like that. But anyway, the word was tundra. And so I went to um, um, Wikipedia and found this amazing picture. I love this photograph. And this was just a regular photograph in Wikipedia of tundra. This was the representation of it. But look at how beautiful this, this is. This is the vegetation here. And the front is a, um, a muskox skull. And there's the hut. And then there's the, a research vessel passing by. And um, it's just a photograph by Hans Grobe. And it just says, um, um, Sidap and Scoresby Sund, East Greenland. Skull of muskox and foreground vegetation is mostly Salix glauca, uh, Russian research vegetable M.V. Multinovsky in the fjord. But that might be one of my favorite photographs I've ever seen. I just think that is so cool for some reason. The contrast between um, um, the the vegetation and um, and, and, the, and the different areas, the depth of that photograph is just so cool. Anyway, um, so I kind of wrote my poem not really based on the photograph, but um, close. And this is my short poem. I'm still working on short forms. This is Tundra. God said, let there be Tundra. And there it was, a rolling sea of sedge and lichen, everything that grew, <clears throat> grown low, from the naked shrubs and mosses to the golden tips of the Tundra grass. Even the scavenged skull of last year's muskox, half buried in melt bog, not a tree to shield the tiny thumb of your wriggling body from the wrath of the wind. No shadow or shelter, no quarter or creed, but the one law of light, whenever there's light, and still it was good. That's my little poem, Tundra, kind of inspired by this photograph and the word tundra. So um, that is our prompt for this week. If you have any, let me call up. Ah, so we have Vicky too. Vicky Miko, we'll do Richard Westheimer. Then we'll do Vicky Miko. And um, we'll see who else would like to call in. So I'm calling uh, Richard Westheimer right now. Hey, Richard, good to see you. Let me pull you in. Um, here you go. Hello, how are you doing today? I'm so glad you could join us after not quite having time to get to you last night. Oh, no worries. I planned to attend both of these. I have to say, yesterday's reading and the open mic afterwards was just about the best hour and a half of poetry Ever. That was true. Well, so cool. I'm so glad you thought so. I, I just, I love Dorian, and um, it was great to, to get to, to meet her. I never met her actually, although I feel like I knew her from her poems. Um, so that was really great. Um, so your prompt was, or your prompt poem was "Bang." That was your word. Um, it was "Bang." I uh, happened to have this book um, on my table, "Book of Luminous Things," and just opened it up to a. Um, uh, Sharon Old Farm, ah. going back to 1937, not intentionally, I guess maybe the book had been creased open to that page, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, but found the word bang. And it really was like a starting gun for the poem because bang did not end up reappearing in the poem. Hmm. Um, yeah, interesting. So, well, let's... Um, I, try, I tried, <laughs> I sort of worked it in a few times, but... Uh, those drafts didn't work yeah. as well. Well, the starting gun, it's a good way to do it. Yeah. So, okay, let's hear it. Bang. So here we go. Bang. I cannot get away from the day's news. And this poem is no refuge, though the title was revealed to me in a dream. Me having gone to bed obsessed, refreshing my browser again and again 
lusting for news of which streets in my city were trashed, which cop took which man to his knees, which black-clad provocateur ball-peened which glass window. Whoever thought a wall of glass was a good idea anyway, that man didn't understand. We don't want to see what goes on inside, behind the curtain. Do you really want to know which synapses are connected to the trigger finger, which to the clenched fist, or which to the sigh of one who is so, so tired, so tired of being seen as something other, wearied when we, the people, only see them through the plasma screen, which is showing some obscene scene of a black body sacrificed, knowing they are seen as some sort of phylactery containing our fears. You get it. You don't want to see inside. So why glass walls? Is it because when they shatter, the shards are like ring like a thousand broken bells? Or that seeing ourselves reflected in a shop window is the closest we come to being luminous. Even though we are stuck, stuck here, stuck on the other side. Perhaps we make such walls transparent because we really don't want to be with you over there. We just want to seem like we are seeing you. Oh, wow. Very nice. That's a great poem, uh, Richard. That was Bang by Richard Westheimer. And yeah, the poems this week for the prompt, we have to, what was the prompt? It was just pick up. So I guess it, it was that we sort of let people do whatever they wanted maybe, but, but they're yeah. great poems this week. Yeah. All, all of them that everybody's read so yeah. far have been excellent. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday's open mic was just solid from beginning to end. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing that Richard. It's, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Good to, good to see you again. Thank you, Tim. Bye. Bye. Let's see. Um, oh, Matthew King's here too, and Vicky Miko. Yeah, let, I'll give uh, give Vicky Miko a call. Hey, Vicky, can you hear me? Ah, here you are. Hello. Let me uh, pull you over so everybody else can see you too. Hello, Vicky. How are you doing today? I'm I'm doing good. The um the delay is kind of goofy. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, we can hear you fine. And um and I have your poem here. Um, so. Okay. Is there anything you want to say about it to introduce it's, it? It's called Doip. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I um I saw the word in um, Magic Words. Uh, it's a dictionary by Craig Conley. I love this book. Oh, that sounds uh, cool. It's it's, uh, it's an onomatopoeia. Mm -hmm. Um. So there's a there's a real interesting story behind the word, and it's it's a bit intertwining so i'll i'll read the, the short version okay sounds good um the, yeah the word was taken from a quote in the book written by david james duncan an award-winning novelist activist and environmentalist who was instrumental in saving the big blackfoot river from being exploited and polluted by the mcdonald gold mine project in 1997 um it all started with the 1992 movie, A River Runs Through It. Um, the movie was based on the novel by the same name, written by Norman McLean in 1976. So 
um, the movie unintentionally caused a huge flood of careless fishermen and people to go to the Black the Blackfoot River and and they totally pillaged the place. It was really sad. So this is what prompted um, uh, David James Duncan to write the book, and he had a successful protest hmm. that uh, saved the saved the river actually. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not so I'm not surprised pretty, at all. Um, living in a mountains, people trash things. <laughs> it's terrible. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah it's pretty yeah. bad. But um, but I love that movie though. Um, anyway, yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready with the poem. Okay. Uh, um, this is uh, a quote. Letting fly my one chance, I spoke the magic word into the blue doip. My story is told by water, the war for, for Norman's River, David James Duncan, an intention that saved the Blackfoot River. Doip. The sound of one baby bull trout leaping. Doip. Splashing back, doip, into the downstream, its little body a skyrocket, not to catch a fly, but for the joy, doip, a perfect magic word when uttered with pure intention. It turns out, doip, stop the spoils sure to poison the feeding drift and continental bottomlands in small circles along the river. One fly fisher, his boots steady in the sediment whiplashed. It turns out his intention was a victory. They listened to the magic sound, doip, a baby bull trout caught in the cross breeze, a catch, released. Oh, very nice. Another excellent poem. I love that word. That was doip um, by Vicky Miko. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Thank Vicky. You. Yeah, I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, have... And um, one thing... I, I I wanted to um, <laughs> I just got my first copy uh-huh. of Rattle. Oh, cool! And uh, and the uh, Ripa, the Rattle Young Poets Anthology. It's my very first copy. Oh, cool! Well, and uh, I must say these these young people, their poems are absolutely astounding. They're just incredible. They are. They're they're sort of so, kind uh, of dark this year. It's it's a little um you know the serious topics coming up for, for those young people but um oh gosh yeah but, yeah but we publish but they're terrific yeah yeah, yeah we publish uh what what they really have to say so <laughs> yeah yeah well thanks so much uh vicky for for sharing that too thanks everybody bye. thanks everybody too it was great okay, bye okay and now let's do um matthew king and he just sent us a revised version let's call him up hey matthew uh I'll mute you until you get it all figured out. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I'm having some technical difficulties here. Can well, you hear me? We can hear you, and I can just show the poem. So um, why don't you just, I'll just put, oh, here you come, I think. Oh, yeah. There you are. You're, right. you're, you're sideways, but. Am, am I? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can uh, spin I you. I do this. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, now you're right, right way. Yeah, now you're right way up. So how are you doing today, Matthew? Good. How are you? That was a great interview. Yeah, um, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. Two days. Yeah, in a row. last night. It's been a great uh, less than twenty-four hours. <laughs> it uh, has. I didn't know if we could we could do this much poetry in twenty-four hours, but we did. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Um, so, so what was All your right. what was your word and where did it come from? Uh, the word is Jonah. I have to admit, I kind of cheated a little. So, uh, 
you know, of course, I start flipping through various books I got lying around, and I and I and I'm having a hard time like settling on something. <laughs> so I so I picked four books, and then I actually used a random number generator <laughs> uh, to, to generate random page numbers uh -huh. for each of these four books, and uh, and then and then you know blindly picked a word on the on the page. And pick the one I like best. So it's uh, uh, from the collected poems of Robert Frost, and it happened to be right at the end of uh, the collected poems. And it's uh, from the A Mask of Mercy, which is a poem about Jonah, uh -huh. and uh, and the word is Jonah. Very cool. Okay, well everybody so. can see. So go ahead whenever you're ready. All right, Jonah. When God has reached the limits of deals he made with devils, created for his own devices, he appeals to implacable creatures for whom he sent flood, not fire. So evils survive under seas, which he summons up to swallow his own graven image. And when the man's digested, reformed for greater graces, the fish regurgitates him on foreign shores for salvage. He puts his ear to shells he scavenged from the wreckage. Very nice. That was Jonah by uh, Matthew King. Thanks so much for sharing that, Matthew. Another excellent poem. They're just good, good stuff this week. Thanks, Steph. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Right. Yeah, have a good Take one. Take care. Okay. Um, let me see. So there was all the people who wanted to call in, and we had a bunch. If you want to, if you didn't watch uh, Dorian Lux's interview and show yesterday, we had a whole bunch of other poems uh, for this prompt too. Um, Kathy Gibbons. Let's see. She sent a poem. In case you have a chance to fit it, um, let's see. Her word was grin, but she hasn't called. I wonder if she would like me to read it. You know, I'll, it's short. I'll just read it for her, I think. Oh, oh here's Caitlin Buxbaum, too. So I'm going to just read. You know what we'll do? I'll uh, We'll call up Caitlin, and then we'll, um, if Kathy wants to call in um, while we're talking to Caitlin, then I will let her read it. And if not, I'll just share it myself to close out the show either way. But let's call... Uh, Let's call Caitlin. We got a couple minutes. We got about eight minutes till I got to end. Oh, hey. Hey, Caitlin. Good to see you. Well, I don't see you yet. There you are. Yep. I, gotta, I, gotta... I almost paused it in time this time. <laughs> almost. So how are you doing today? Good to see you again after just a few hours later. Yeah, I know. This is like three days in a row. I felt a little <laughs> bad, but, you know, there... if nobody else called in, I figured. Yeah, there's time. Might as well. Um. Let me try to pull. So you had a sonnet, you said? Let's see. Yeah. In the three I sent you yesterday, um, the one called Death is the sonnet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I see it. Okay. We have cool. it. Okay. And that was your word, Death. What did it come from? Mm -hmm. This one was from Unbroken. That's uh, another. I've been reading a lot of war books um, that I've. I'm I'm interested in World War II, um, and so that was one one of my students read a couple years ago, actually, and, and that's why I decided I should read it. So, of course, the word death probably shows up in there a lot, so statistically, it's not surprising that's the word I found. That's true, yeah. Yeah, the odds are good. Although the first time I did a word, it was it was like the. <laughs> I, had to, <laughs> I had to do it again, but the second word was yeah. good. Um, okay, so it's ready whenever you are. Yeah, and just the one quick thing to say first, I, I find it kind of funny, you know, that 
Mark uh, came out at the end there talking about his atheism, and then your poem had the word God in it, I and know. then Matt <laughs> read one on Jonah, and mine also has I God know, in it. I know, it's so weird, so... and, and I'm, a, I'm an atheist, too. I'm a I'm an admirer of religion, but, um, but you know, so I kind of, I like the idea of science re- replacing the um, the iconography of it. I think that was really cool, but I did, did start out with a God there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you can use... Well, I don't know about you specifically, but you in the general sense can use both. I mean, I like to write science mm-hmm. poems too. But in any case, here's my sonnet okay. called Death. Each day we wait for certain death to come. Another Earth's rotation round the sun will bring us closer to the only one who tells us when his holy work is done. But if we find our good death be delayed, we should not be affrighted or dismayed when half the world is taken by a plague and one crime or another sets the stage. For worser fates than touch the least of these, afflicted by the things they hear and see, without believing why another grieves, even rejecting their sacred duty. Dear eager death, please hurry, come for us, when none but God is worthy of our trust. Very good. Thanks so much for sharing that, Caitlin Buxbaum. That was death. And and yeah, God keeps showing up all of a sudden. So it's funny. <laughs> And I also forgot to mention that little footnote there was just, I misread a line in a, in a Luther Hughes poem. Um, he said, dear eager earth, but I somehow read it as dear eager death. So <laughs> I had to stick that in there. Well, that works. Yeah. Well, thanks for another excellent poem. These are just good, a good group of poems this week. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. So we had, I'm going to do this last one. This is a two- Eight one number. I don't know if that's Kathy Gibbons or not, but that's the only poem I still have text for, I think. We'll see who this is. Phone is ringing. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Uh, who am I talking to? Hi, Tim. It's Kathy Gibbons. Ah, uh, good. I was I hoping that would be you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd call on in. It's a little bit of a flight of fancy poem written in the middle of the night so very nice and, and where did you where did the um the word come from the word actually i had chosen the word at random from a book by tana french called the witch's elm which i'm reading now and it, the word is grin so um and then i woke up in the middle of the night as i am wont to do and uh wrote a quick poem and went back to sleep so. <laughs> very cool yeah <laughs> well let's cool. see yeah yeah let's hear it then grin okay grin Grin, roar on in, despoiling. Oops, sorry, my phone went off. <laughs> despoiling with that jaunty cock of head and tip of lip, unraveling any semblance of self-protection, mediating with a smile, electric stimulation, and that cleft of chin so deep that hope could nestle there with kindness and a welcome like landing home again. The grin and inverted arch, a door that's left ajar to guide the thirsty traveler in. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was Grin by Kathy Gibbons. Um, yeah, thanks so much for calling and sharing that. Another excellent poem. I uh, appreciate thanks it. Thanks for all the great times of poetry the last few days. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It, it makes me want to do it like every day, even though I don't have time. Yay! Let's do it. <laughs> but it does. Okay, it, it is nice to have... Um, you know, just a, like a continuation. It's like it never ends. It's it's like a sleepover party or something. I don't and know. Like but a it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, thanks so much, Kathy. Have a good rest of your day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Okay, well, that is going to be the show for today. I'll, at the last minute, a couple people asked on, but I'm running out of time. Actually, the truth is our uh, water heater started leaking over the weekend, and uh, the plumber's coming to replace it at 1.30, my time. And um, this morning I played tennis, and then I had to take a shower in the um, a cold shower. It was brutal. We are up in the mountains with these um, artesian spring water, and it is cold out of the faucet. Oh, my gosh. Um, but anyway, so I have to get going, but, um, thanks everybody for joining us as always. It's just, it's just always a pleasure to get, be able to do these, um, next week's guest, as we mentioned before, is going to be Sonia Greenfield and her new book, Let Down. Um, it's her second book of poetry. She's one of the, sort of the, a legend of the Poets Respond. If you go to the Poets Respond page and, um, just scroll down or just do a search for Greenfield. Uh, you will see a lot of really good poems, uh, some of the best that were in Poets Respond over the years. and um, But her new book is 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 not news poems, it's uh, Let Down. So join me for that uh, next Tuesday night, uh, June 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. I will see you then. We will also, of course, do the Critique of the Week on Friday. Uh, that is uh, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. And then the open mic Poetry Spawn Live uh, Sunday morning or at noon on the East Coast, 9 a.m. for me. So um, I will see you pretty soon, but hopefully see you for Sonia Greenfield uh, next Tuesday. Have a good night and um, stay safe and be well. Okay, I did it again. If you're still here, I forgot to share the um, prompt poem uh, for next week, which I did last night, and I'll put it in the show notes. These are always going to be in the show notes, but um, let me find it. Um, the prompt for next week is uh, for for Sonia's show. Is um, here it is. Write a poem based on your most recent dream must not use adjectives or adverbs. Uh, So that's next week's prompt. Write a poem based on your most recent dream, must not use adjectives or adverbs. And thank you to Stephanie uh, Kitty Carpenter for reminding me. This happened a couple weeks ago too, and and somebody um, said, prompt, prompt, and I was like, oh no. (laughs) So I hadn't shut off the stream yet, and um, now you know, that is the prompt. Uh, One more time, that prompt for next week is write a poem based on your most recent dream, must not use adjectives or adverbs. Okay, so it's a you know, nouns and verbs kind of poem. Keep it bare and write about your most recent dream. We'll see what you come up with there. Um, I had a weird dream last night, so uh, maybe that'll be <laughs> that'll be my dream for for next week. But uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us, and um, yeah, sorry for the for the uh, stop the presses on the ending there, but but uh, it is what it is. Thanks a lot. Have a good rest of your day.